If you would open up your copies of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 13, uh, because these two paragraphs belong together. Uh, so looking at verses 18 through 22, but beginning reading in verse 13. Uh, so here now the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of our God. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison when they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, Peter, in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3, has called you, Christian, to be ready to honor Christ as holy by preparing yourself to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of hope that is in you. That while you suffer, and while you suffer for righteousness' sake and suffer righteously, you would be ready to defend your Christian faith to those who are around you, even to those who are seeking your harm, who are doing evil against you. And in that paragraph, it's one of the most robust statements in the entire Bible about needing to make that defense for your faith. And there's an interesting thing that I think I want to point out here at the beginning of this sermon. And it's that when Peter instructs you to be ready to defend your faith, he doesn't call you to go get a doctorate degree in philosophy. He doesn't call you to prepare yourself with proofs in order to defend the faith. He doesn't tell you to arm yourself with a series of arguments in order to go and do that, although all of those things may be well and good. What he tells you to do is to prepare yourself to arm yourself with hope, to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. And that statement to be ready to make a defense for that hope that is in you poses on a question, doesn't it? And the question is, what is your hope? And I think it's answering that question that Peter gets to in verses 18 through 22, our passage here this morning. Because when Peter instructs you to be ready with your hope, what he's going to do next is to present that hope before you. And the hope that he wants you to have what he wants you to be ready with when you go out into this world and suffer at the hands of wicked men, 
or, or live in a time of, of difficulty and hardship in this world as sojourners and aliens wandering through this wilderness age is to gaze firmly upon the person and work of Christ. You see, the hope that Peter wants you to have when you are living in this sin-sick world The hope Peter wants you to have when you are suffering, when your outer man is wasting away, when you are persecuted and slandered for the sake of Christ, is your suffering Savior. Your Savior who went to the cross in your stead, who bore the penalties for your sins, but more than that, was raised on the third day and is ascended into heaven, reigning even now over you and everything in this world. Peter wants you to understand in the context of your suffering, in the context of your hardship, in the context of living in this wilderness life, that Christ's sufferings and subsequent glories are your hope. And his sufferings and subsequent glories are your hope. Because as Christ has gone, so also you must follow. If the pattern of Christ's life, if the pattern of the gospel is from the cross to glory, then the pattern for the Christian is from suffering to glory as well. That you will, for a time, endure hardship. That you will, for a time, endure pain. You will, for a time, endure persecution and slandering at the hands of evildoers. But your hope is the kingdom of heaven. Your hope is Christ. As we consider this this morning, we're going to look at it in four parts. First, thinking of the sufferings of Christ, verse 18. Second, an example he makes from Noah in verses 19 through 20. A sign of baptism in verse 21. And then lastly, the subsequent glories in verse 22. Uh, So first, let's consider the sufferings of Christ here in verse 18. Peter begins his exposition of your hope in the midst of suffering in a very interesting way if you stop and think about it. And I want you to think about it this way. When's the last time someone came to you in the midst of their hardship and the first thing out of your mouth was, hey, did you know that Christ suffered? How do you usually respond when somebody comes to you? Usually when somebody comes to you with their hardship, you say, I'm so sorry to hear of that. You you, you lament the hardship, you lament the pain. And unfortunately, we often also answer in certain groups of platitudes. Things like good things come to those who wait or Take the good with the bad, or the darkness, or the world is always darker before the dawn. Things are going to get better if you just wait. Well, Peter starts in a radically different way. He doesn't start with comfort, although that might be a good place to start in your conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, he wants you to start with the pattern of Christ's life. And as he does so, I think he's making a very important practical and theological statement. And I think that practical and theological statement that he is trying to make here is that the pattern of the gospel, the pattern of the good news of Christ, and the good news for you is suffering unto glory. He wants you to understand and to come to grips with the reality that if there is no suffering, then there is no glory. See, the gospel trajectory The good news he wants you to understand is that it's not a pattern of circumventing suffering or or going around suffering. Rather, it's a pattern of suffering to glory. 
the way that you are able to suffer for doing good and to pursue what is good rather than to pursue what is evil, a way you are to arm yourself with hope in the midst of your hardship is to realize that Christ suffered as well. You see, suffering and persecuted Christians need to look to their suffering Savior because as you do, you see one who suffered perfectly and who suffered righteously. Peter himself says in chapter 2, verse 21, that Christ's suffering leaves you an example to follow so that just as you suffer for righteousness' sake, you could suffer righteously as well. He calls you here to follow in the steps of your Savior, to take up his cross and to live a cross-shaped life that your character, as you suffer, might present the sufferings of Christ, that your life may match the pattern of Christ's own life. See, what Peter is calling you here, as you ponder your suffering and your life and humility in this age, is to arm yourself with the gospel pattern of the cross. And I think Peter is getting to this, and I think he's starting here, because Peter failed at this in his own life. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, as soon as Peter confesses that Christ was the Lord, that he was the Messiah who has come, What did Jesus start to do? He started to teach Peter what that gospel was really all about. And what was it about? His suffering, wasn't it? He started to teach Peter that he must suffer and even perish for their sins. And what did Peter say? He said, no, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus' instruction to him after that was what? Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking of the things of men, not the things of God. You ever realize that the very next verse after that is the instruction to take up the cross and follow him? You see, Jesus is instructing him, yes, of the gospel pattern of his life, but also of the cruciform pattern of your life. But Peter didn't get it yet, did he? Remember what happened on the night when Christ was betrayed? The night when Peter needed to be armed with that theology of a suffering Savior that Jesus himself had been teaching him all along? When that persecution, when that hardship came against him, when that temptation came on that night three times, what did Peter do? But deny his own Savior. See, Peter did not arm himself with the sufferings of Christ, such that when the temptation came, when the persecution came, he denied the Savior who came to rescue him from his sins. He was not ready with the hope of suffering. And so he is instructing you, Christian, to not follow in his steps, but to instead follow in Christ's steps. You see, when confronted with Jesus's suffering, he was not ready. But he is instructing you now to be ready with the sufferings of Christ, to know that as your Savior trod on this earth and suffered and died in your stead, that you are also called to a life of suffering and a life of humility. Be ready. Be ready, he says, with the theology of a suffering Savior. But Peter's statement here, I think, does more than just rehash chapter 2, verse 21. Does more than just say, be ready to take up your cross and follow Christ. Instead, I think he enriches it and builds upon it in two very important ways. First, he builds upon it by highlighting the unique and perfect aspects of Christ's own suffering. 
Notice what he says here. He doesn't just say that Christ suffered. He says Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And this aspect of Christ's suffering is completely unique, isn't it? When we suffer as we do in our lives, we do not suffer as a mediator between God and man. But Christ in his suffering, and we could even say because of his suffering, brings us to God. The perfectly righteous Son of God, as he went to the cross, did so as a substitute to pay the penalty for sins for unrighteous sinners like you and like me. A unique, perfect, sinless substitute bearing the curse for sin and death on the cross that he may be the one to restore us to communion with God, to save us from sin. See, there's this temptation, isn't there? both in Peter's day as well as in ours, to think that suffering only comes because of some sort of wrong that we have done. That suffering in our lives as a Christian is a punishment from God. Now let's be sure here, sin can lead to suffering, and often does. Peter talks about that, I think, in verse 17. But here, what he wants you to grasp is that in the Christian life, there is such a thing as suffering, not because of your sin, but precisely because of your righteousness. And there is a way, a path, to suffer righteously as well. See, we have become all too comfortable in our lives, haven't we? Back just a few weeks ago, we have outgrown our car as we, our family is growing, and I went to go buy a new minivan, yes, taking the minivan plunge, as I like to call it, and I got into it, and I hadn't driven a minivan since the 90s. And so I was looking at it, or really been in a minivan since the 90s, and I'm getting into this thing, and I realized this thing is remarkably comfortable. It's like driving a spaceship. My hands are always going to be warm because the steering wheel is warmed. I just throw my phone into the center console, and it plays up on the screen. I never lost. It always tells me where I'm supposed to go. And, man, that lumbar support is really nice. We're comfortable, aren't we? But then I go from that, and I get in my 2002 Chevy pickup, and I realize life's pretty good in that minivan plunge. We have become so comfortable in our lives. We've become so comfortable that any time we have any element of discomfort at all, we think it's something negative. We think it's because we've done some sort of wrong, but Peter wants you to grasp that there is such a thing as suffering for the sake of Christ. If this were not the case, if it were not the case that you could suffer because of righteousness, then Christ, the perfectly righteous one, could not have suffered as our mediator. But if Christ, the righteous one, did suffer for us and does through his suffering make us right with God, then there is a category in our own suffering to know that you may not be suffering because of sin, but precisely because of your calling to Christ. When terrible things happen, cancer diagnosis, car wreck, the death of a loved one, we are tempted to think that it's because of sin. But the reality is it's part of living in a sin-sick world, part of living in a time of humiliation when we still look forward to the day when all of those things will be pushed aside and when we live in that kingdom of perfect peace and righteousness. See, we may not have a works-based view of salvation, but we often have a works-based view of suffering. And I think Peter wants to take us out of that here and not think about suffering in terms of our works, but rather suffering in terms of our Savior. 
Christ has made you right with God, Peter says. To claim otherwise would be to deny in our suffering the sufficiency of Christ's death for you. You see, not only was Christ's suffering utterly unique as he goes as our mediator, it's also completely perfect. You see what Peter says here, Christ's suffering was once. That is, it was once for all. He did not have to go repeatedly to the cross, dying multiple times for your sins. But as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 28, that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As your sinless substitute, as the only mediator between God and man, Christ's suffering has paid the full penalty for your transgressions. He has won full restoration to God to all and for all who trust and rest in him. There is nothing else that you need. There is no further wages to be paid because the precious blood of Christ has sprinkled you clean and made you right with the God of heaven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no purification for sin, but Christ's blood is that perfect sacrifice that covers over all of your sin and makes you right with God. See, through his perfect suffering as a mediator in your stead, you are made right with God, and therefore you can have hope even in the midst of your suffering. Those flaming darts of the evil one that seek to accuse you in the midst of your suffering and hardship or that self-righteousness that creeps in and says, I don't deserve this, are both silenced by the sufferings of Christ. To know that you can suffer precisely because of righteousness' sake. And as you live in this sin-sick world, you can suffer righteously. There's a second thing Peter wants you to understand as he builds upon the instruction to take up the cross of Christ and follow him. And it's not only that Christ's suffering is utterly unique and perfect as your mediator making you right with God, but it also gives way to victory in his resurrection. See, the death of Christ was not his defeat. It was actually the path to his victory. Notice how the verse ends. While being put to death in the flesh, he is what? Made alive by the Spirit. For him to be put to death in the flesh highlights the climax of the state of Christ's humiliation. How he came down from heaven, exchanged the glory of a heavenly throne for an earthly manger, underwent the miseries of this life. He came under the law to redeem those from the law and was tempted in every way that we were without sin. And how he went to the cross as our mediator, dying that once for all death to make us right with God. For him to be made alive by the Spirit takes us to the resurrection glory of Christ's exaltation. Because of Christ's perfect, sinless death, it was not possible for the pangs of death to hold him down, but upon bearing the curse of death and being under the power of death for three days and the power of the Spirit now, he rose again that he might be the one who not only bears the curse for your sin, but also the one who can give you life with God. That's why I think Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the life-giving spirit. Because by virtue of his resurrection in the spirit, 
Christ has earned the right to give spiritual resurrection life to all of those who are his. To give the promise of resurrection life, exaltation, glory, and a heavenly inheritance to all those whom he will call as his own. See, do you hear the words of hope that Peter wants to give you in the time of your humiliation, in the time of your suffering? Your hope in the midst of suffering is that your sinless Savior has completely and perfectly borne the wages of your sin, and that he has already now, in the time of your hardship, sown resurrection life in your hearts and made you right with God. See, Peter is saying, beloved, that Christ's resurrection power, his resurrection power that saves and grants life in him is revealed in this age in your weakness, in your suffering, in your humiliation. A time of suffering, humiliation, and hardship is not contradictory to the power of God in your life. It is the way God's power is expressed in this life. Christ's victory was through his death, and it is the same way for the church. Remember what the old church father Tertullian said, as Christians were suffering and being persecuted and dying, the blood of the Christian is seed. It's almost like the more we suffer, the more the gospel of Christ is presented before the world in even greater clarity. Even as we look in this world and our own nation becomes increasingly anti-Christian, there's a silver lining there, isn't there? And the silver lining is that as the kingdom of darkness looks like it is winning and gaining greater light, as that darkness is increasing in our own culture, the light of the gospel shines more brilliantly in the midst of it like a flashlight in the midst of a dark room. Right? You turn the lights on and it looks a little bit dim, but you shut them off and all of a sudden everything is being seen in that greater light and clarity. See, your suffering, your hardship for today is not a testimony of Christ's lack of care for you. It's not his failure to protect you. It's actually a testimony to his once-for-all suffering and a call for you to live in light of that spiritual inheritance of heaven even now. Your suffering is not a problem for you to overcome. It's part of what it means to to live as a sojourner and an alien in this world, looking forward to your citizenship in the heavenly places. In order to illustrate this for you, in order to give you this hope to endure in a time of hardship, Peter then takes us to an Old Testament example of victory through judgment and endurance in a time of suffering. And that example is an example of Noah in verses 19 and 20. Now, I want to be clear here that these verses are by far the hardest ones in 1 Peter to interpret. And some have taken these words to mean that in between Christ's death and resurrection, that Christ went down to hell and proclaimed the gospel to fallen angels, almost like a second chance sort of theology that these angels are the spirits in prison, and they would say that they are the sons of God that married the daughters of men from Genesis chapter 6, taking it back to Noah's day. But I don't think that seems to fit at all. We could list a whole host of reasons, but I'll just mention here, I don't think it fits Genesis 6. Where in Genesis 6, the, the sons of God are most likely descendants from the line of Seth, or maybe even leaders from the line of Seth in Genesis 5. And and the problem there is that they have intermingled themselves with the line of Cain. But I also don't think it fits with what Peter is saying in these verses. Where what happens is when? It's in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Not in between Christ's death and resurrection. 
So I don't think it fits in Genesis 6, and I don't think it fits here in 1 Peter chapter 3. What Peter is doing is using an example from Noah's day to encourage believers in our day. And what I think he's saying is this, is that through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, proclaimed the sufferings and subsequent glories through the prophets prior to his coming, the Spirit, the Spirit of prophecy in the days of Noah, proclaimed the truth of God's judgment against sin. And as that Spirit proclaimed the truth of God's judgment against sin, it also brought the reality of salvation for those who hope in God. So you remember what the Lord did in the days of Noah? After giving a very robust indictment against sin in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, as he talked about how mankind was utterly corrupt and held imprisoned by the absolute sway of sin, the Lord then held his judgment in abeyance for a period of 120 years, so that Noah, a righteous individual who had found favor in God's eyes, might be delivered through that judgment to salvation in a new creation on the other side. Think of what that would have meant for Noah. That would have meant for a period of 120 years, the righteous Noah and his family would have lived and suffered in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation awaiting the day of their salvation. But the time was coming. The time was coming. The Lord has made his promise that he would sweep away the wicked, that he would redeem Noah and his family and bring them safely through the judgment of the flood to a new creation on the other side. See, the flood was essentially a worldwide judgment, an end of days in the pre-Noah world and the foundation of a post-Noah world, as Peter will himself say in 2 Peter chapter 3. And with those things in mind, I think we're better equipped to understand what Peter is saying when he says in these verses, by whom, that is by the Spirit, he, the Spirit through Noah, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that's the people enslaved to sin in Noah's day, when they did not obey. And when did they not obey? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. See, using Noah as an example, he is saying that the righteous one, Noah, underwent an extended period of time, 120 years, longer than any of us had been alive. An extended period of time of suffering, of humiliation, of waiting and longing for the day of his salvation. But this patient waiting was so that the Lord's chosen people, those who had found favor in his sight, might be brought safely via the ark through the waters of judgment. Noah was called to endure. He was called to endure before the judgment would come, before the salvation that was promised would be wrought for him. But God was true to his word, wasn't he? God remembered Noah. God remembered his family. God preserved his people, and he brought them safely through the waters of the flood to a new creation on the other side. And if that is true for Noah, how much more is that true for you? You who have received salvation in one who is far greater than Noah. And so just as Noah had suffered for a little while, but was delivered through the judgment of the flood through the ark, so also you will suffer for a little while until you are delivered and brought to that eternal new creation, that spiritual heavenly realm where Jesus has gone as a forerunner to prepare a place for you. 
a new creation that is far greater than the one that Noah received. See, the world that Noah inherited after the flood was still corruptible by sin, but the promises of God to you is that you will receive an inheritance that is incorruptible and perfect and perpetual, and you will reign and live in a world where all of the ailments of this sin-sick creation will be no more. See, just like in the days of Noah, God's patient endurance of this age is not to your detriment. It is actually for your good, as God promises to bless you and to keep you and to bring you to that eternal inheritance. In fact, Peter himself makes this explicit in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he draws upon Noah again in that chapter, and he ends that section by saying this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And he says in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He even says in verse 15, just a few verses later, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation as you await the day of Christ's second coming. You see what Peter is doing here? He's using Noah's life as a pattern for your life to show you that God is true to all of his promises. He's faithful to his people, that he will bless you, he will keep you, and he will bring you safely to heaven's shores. The end of things, the victory of Christ through death and resurrection and the promise of his second coming has been revealed to you who believe. Therefore, you should be encouraged for today with the bright hope of tomorrow. The wicked schemes of men will not prevail against you, but instead, by the power of the Spirit in this time of hardship, he will make you to grow in grace. He will make you to grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because you know these things beforehand, because you know the end is sure, the patience of God in delaying that day, is one that can encourage you to know that today is the day of salvation. That God is at work right now, saving sinners and sanctifying saints. And what greater thing can be encouraging to you than that? That God's patient endurance and even guiding you through this time of suffering and humiliation and hardship, a day when Peter himself says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, is because by the power of the Spirit, God has worked to bring sinners back to himself. What greater reason could you have to endure in hope than the mighty work of God to save right now? And what greater hope can you have to endure than to know that while you suffer now for a little while, that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the story of Noah is one where God keeps his promises and where God preserves his people. And Paul or Peter is saying that the same is true for you. God keeps his promises. God preserves his people. You can trust and rest in him in the midst of your hardship because the end is sure. Look to him. Trust in him. Know that he will bring you safe to heaven's shores to ground that promise, to anchor it firmly in your life as a Christian. Peter then takes you to consider your baptism. 
baptism, which is a covenant sign of the promises of God. Remember what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that great Pentecost sermon. He says, the promise is to you and to your children, and the promise that is to you and to your children there is confirmed by the sign of baptism in Acts chapter 2. And so he says to confirm the promises of God in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See what Peter's doing? He's making a correspondence between the flood in Noah's day and the sign of baptism in ours. And I think you can see why Peter might want to make this connection. I guess I can say, first of all, that if verses 19 and 20 are the hardest, verse 21 is the second hardest uh, in the whole book of 1 Peter. But, But I think what Peter is saying here is this. He's saying that the waters of the flood testify to the judgment of death, but also the promise of life. Think of what would have happened in Noah's life when that rainstorm starts to come. When Noah sees the storm clouds gathering, it's not a sign of judgment and condemnation for him, is it? It would actually have been a testimony of God's wonderful promises coming to fruition. And so as he is sealed up in the ark by the power of God, he sees those clouds as a testimony to his salvation. But the rest of the world, when those storm clouds are gathering, it's a testimony to their condemnation. See, the waters of the flood testified to both of those things, the judgment of God against the world and the promises of God to Noah and his family. And the waters of baptism, I think, do the same thing. Because baptism, while it does have a notion of cleansing from sin, it has the notion of cleansing of sin, what does Peter say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the waters of baptism testify to both the death of Christ, but especially the resurrection of Christ. Baptism as a sacrament, as a sign, testifies to the once for all utterly unique and perfect sacrificial death of Christ, as well as his role as one who makes alive by the power of the Spirit. And I think that's why Peter says here, baptism now saves you. He's not saying what some would Uh, say he's saying here that baptism automatically regenerates you, but by bearing the sign of baptism, you are automatically and immediately renewed. Instead, what he is doing when he's talking about the sign of baptism, he takes you to what it signifies. In fact, he explicitly says here, doesn't he, that baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is through the power of the Spirit uniting you to your risen Savior that baptism testifies to that you are saved. Christ, the life-giving spirit, Peter is saying, is active now in the life of the church, saving fallen sinners and making us alive in him. The spirit is alive right now in the church, testifying to the promises of God, telling you that they are sure and steadfast and his love will not waver for those who are his. You see, for a time, it's going to look like the church is losing. For a time, The people of God will suffer, will be humiliated in the world. But the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter to which baptism is a sign, is that the promises of God will be brought to fruition. You remember the promises of God? Or perhaps you remember Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16, mentioned it earlier, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So you need to remember, beloved, that the promises of God They are not pertaining to cultural hegemony. 
They, they don't pertain to superiority in this world as though you're going to go out and all of a sudden everybody's going to believe what you believe or hold what you hold. The promises of God are to the work of God to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and sin and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That's what God is doing in this age of patient endurance. He is active in saving sinners. He is active in building his church and increasing his kingdom. And what greater hope can you have? What greater reason can you have to endure than the mighty works of God through the power of the Spirit in this age? See, this call, this call for you to patiently endure is a, to re- realize that this is the day of salvation for sinners. That God is at work. He's at work now to bless and to keep his people. And he's at work now to bring sinners into his church. But Peter just doesn't, doesn't want to leave you here with just the hope to endure. He also wants to leave you with the reality of glory. And that's what we see last of all in verse 22, where Peter takes us to consider Christ's exaltation to the throne of heaven. So we need to remember in reference to Christ's work of salvation, that not only did he come in humility, live in humility, and die in humility, Not only was he raised as a life-giving spirit and the power of his resurrection, giving life to all those who trust in him by faith, but he also ascended to heaven and reigns now as your redeemer. See, generally speaking, we're pretty good about talking of the death of Christ. And we're also pretty good about talking of the resurrection of Christ. But we often forget about the ascension of Christ. And so Peter here wants to round off your hope by reminding you of Christ's ascension and reign. He ends expounding upon your hope, saying that Christ has gone into heaven and is is at the right hand of God with all angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the resounding note that Peter wants to leave you with as you consider your hope in the midst of suffering is this. Christ reigns. His pathway through suffering and death to resurrection life climaxes with his being seated at the right hand of God in heaven as our reigning and redeemer king who rules over everything where every power and every authority and even the angelic hosts are subjected to him. That Christ has moved from suffering servant to to heavenly sovereign. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see the scope that Peter and Paul are saying here? All things, every authority, every name is subjected to him, both today as well in the age to come. When we are suffering at the hands of evildoers, when we are reckoning with what it means to live in this sin-sick world, we often start to think, perhaps not in our theology, but at least in our practice, that somehow this is outside of God's control. We let slip in that something is beyond his reach, outside of his providence, that something can circumvent his care. In fact, I remember seeing, I don't remember, maybe a meme or something like that on Facebook circulating around a year or two ago, or it had a picture of Christ, which is already bad on its own terms, but it had a picture of Christ uh, standing there as being hit by a bunch of mediators, uh, meteors, and one of them hits him on his chest, bounces back behind him, and hits a Christian who's praying. Have you ever seen that one? It's pretty bad, but, but, but then there's a, a, a line there that it says this, 
I caught most of them, I think you'll be okay, or, or something to that effect. Essentially, what that is saying is, hey, I can endure all of these other things, but every once in a while, something's going to ricochet off of me and hit you. What that denies is the sovereignty of Christ in the midst of your suffering and humiliation. See, the antidote to that, that temptation, the, the, the healing balm for weary souls that are storm-tossed and afflicted in this age is the sure and steadfast reality that Peter takes us to here that Christ reigns. He reigns as your Redeemer now. He reigns and rules over you now in the midst of your suffering. No power, no authority, nor dominion is outside of his providential reign. Nothing is outside of his sovereign care, and therefore nothing can steal you away from his loving hand. He is not only your redeemer, he is not only your mediator who has made you right with God, he is the heavenly sovereign and redeemer king who rules right now and governs all things both for your good, which is his glory. When you are looking at your life, when you are struggling to endure in the midst of this hardship, know that this king is the one who is reigning over all things. That this king is the one who promises to bless you and to keep you. That this king is the one who holds you even now and promises to bring you safely to heaven's shores. When you are suffering, Christian, when you are called to endure in this age, and you must endure, that is your hope. Your hope that can cause you to withstand the fiery trials and the flaming darts of the evil one, it's not your works. It's not trusting in empty platitudes or baseless promises. It is Christ. It is looking to your suffering Savior, resting in the one who has borne every penalty for your sins, looking to the one who has died a perfect sinless death for you, looking to the one who has made you right with God so that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in him. It is looking to the one who not only died for you, but now lives for you and sows life in the hearts of dead sinners. It's casting your gaze to heaven and knowing that God is at work by the power of his spirit to bless you and keep you and to bring you to heaven's shores and to know that your heavenly sovereign reigns right now that he is our reigning Redeemer King with all power, authority, the heavenly host subjected to him both in this age and in the age to come. And as Peter himself ends his letter, to him be dominion forever and ever.